The preaching of God's Word is in Luke chapter 22, verses 47 and 48. It gives to us Judas and his approach to Jesus in the garden. Remember that earlier Luke had recorded the arrangement of Judas with the leaders of the Jews, how it was that for 30 pieces of silver he would betray the Lord Jesus Christ. And this in accordance, of course, to the prophecy that for the price of such Jesus would be betrayed, which was the price of a servant, a slave. And now we have the outworking of it, these two verses. And while he yet spake, behold, a multitude, and he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? Notice that the Scriptures are not satisfied to say that Judas drew near to betray him. That would be true. But it highlights this particular feature. And Christ calls it out. So when Judas comes near, it doesn't just mention that he comes near to betray him. That's true. But he went near unto Jesus, notice the language, to kiss him. And Christ points this out. When Christ responds and says, Judas, not merely betrayest thou the Son of Man, but betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss. There is a focus upon this kiss. A focus which our own culture doesn't quite understand because we equate kissing with romance and marriage and other such things. But our culture actually has access to it in the family perhaps. A mother kisses her child. In some families, in fact, there are aunts and uncles who will come over and a kiss will be given on the cheek. In Mexico, for instance, it's not uncommon to be welcomed and with the embrace of a friend, uh, a kiss to be given in the air next to the cheek of the other. And that's because a kiss in the Scriptures and in the majority of cultures is more associated with friendship than it is with romance. This, of course, doesn't mean that the Scriptures have no place for kisses within the marriage bed. That's clear. But the focus through the Scriptures is this intimacy of nearness and friendship that is the highlight. And without understanding that, we actually miss a key feature of the betrayal of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Judas comes, and think of this for a moment, he doesn't tell the group, there's the man, and point him out. He doesn't say, when we get near, I'm going to describe which clothes he has on and say, that's the one. But whomever I give the kiss to, that's the one. Whomever I draw near to and give this sign of intimacy and friendship, that's the one. Judas, unbeknownst to himself, is actually not only the deceiver, but he's actually deceived. He himself thinks that he's in control of these things. He himself thinks that he has the upper hand on these things. And yet the sign he employs is a sign which displays how wretched it is to turn against 
the only one who is the friend of sinners. Christ comes and He sits with sinners and eats with them. He welcomes them to His presence, not as the culture does today to celebrate their sins and turn a blind eye against their iniquity, but rather as the Savior of sinners, He comes. And even we wonder at this, the language of Song of Solomon, that the believer is able to cry out to Christ, let Him kiss me with the kisses of His mouth. This glorious One, let Him come near and testify to me of His kindness, of His love, of His acceptance, of His mercy. And now Judas goes and perverts, twists, and corrupts that sign and uses it as the very instrument of betrayal. Here is, of course, a historical record of the son of perdition. Here is a clear testimony of what transpired in history. There was, at this moment, of course, Christ with His chosen disciples who were with Him in the garden. Christ had gone and prayed and sweat as it were drops of blood. An angel had strengthened Him and His disciples had grown wearied because of grief and they had fallen asleep and Christ had corrected them. And now this multitude comes as Luke records. And Judas, one of the twelve, oh, what a description, one of the twelve comes and draws near unto Jesus to kiss Him. This happened. And yet, brethren, it's not merely a lesson for our historical knowledge. It is a warning for us to heed. It is something for us to consider. There will be a hell that is filled with people like Judas who were familiar with Judas. There will be men and women who were raised in the church and privileged by the church and by the Lord. And Christ had drawn near and said, I will be your friend. I will bring peace to you. And there's an outward attempt to show some semblance of kindness and friendship. And yet the attempt by the deceived one is ultimately a betrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ. Brethren, take heed that it is not you. Take heed that you prove not to be a Judas. Take heed that you learn from the historical record and wonder at the grand display of betrayal. And oh, how fitting that whenever Judas is mentioned in the list of the disciples, it's regularly Judas, the one who betrayed the Lord. Judas, the betrayer. We see that here. How could so horrible an action be committed in so disgusting a way in the light of so many privileges shown by Christ? Well, this is what we wish to consider looking particularly at three things to help us in this quest. Firstly, considering the betrayer himself. Secondly, the betrayal. And thirdly, the betrayed. All of which will not only, we trust, give us a fuller understanding of this text, but also provide us help to examine ourselves, to seek the Lord, and to turn from our own ways and those who have so turned to rejoice that Christ has come and saved sinners. Well, firstly then, the betrayer. Who is he? Notice he's mentioned he that was called Judas. Judas Iscariot. Elsewhere, a son. 
Think of this for a moment. When you think of this betrayer and you hear the word Judas, the name, you instantly think of this. You think of this scene. And there's propriety in that because this is the pronounced feature of Judas' life. But it's important for us to remember that Judas was a child at one time, a newborn, nursed by his mother, trained up in the synagogue, taught the Scriptures, instructed in the faith of the Jews. He was a covenant member. He sat in the same position as everyone in this room sits today. He was a boy who pleased his mother and his father. He was a boy in the synagogue who was looked upon by others and prayers were offered up for him and words of encouragement and exhortation given to him. He was privileged with all of the privileges of the covenant of grace, bearing in his flesh the mark of circumcision, the sacrament of the old covenant. He himself professed faith, as you can see in the various records of the Gospels, as he identifies himself as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when it is that Christ sends out his disciples two by two, it doesn't say that all of them came back apart from Judas, rejoicing that the demons were indeed subject to them, but Judas is included among them. And so he's a covenant member, he's a professed believer, and moreover, he is an honored servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now think of that. When you think of Judas, start there. Because that's where Judas starts. And when you think of that, instantly Judas becomes less a figure of monstrous proportion that looks haggard in our eyes, looks distant from us, and we start to realize this is what every church member looks like. There was nothing about Judas, even in his time with Christ, that made any of the disciples suspect him. In fact, he was entrusted with the, 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 the bag, the purse, the money of the band of disciples. He was given a position of honor, as it were, among them. And when it was that Christ said, go, do what you will quickly, they thought that he had sent him to run some errand regarding the finances. And so none of the disciples were privy to, aware of, or suspicious of Judas. Quite the opposite everyone would have looked upon Judas and said, there goes a covenant member, one who's professed faith, one who is serving the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. How can we say it more clearly? This is a man, up until this point, given the outward appearance, the profession of faith and the service, that mothers would have said, I hope my daughter marries him. That's the kind of man that Judas was. But that's the kind of man Judas was outwardly. This is what he appeared to men to be. Certainly this is what the judgment of charity demanded because there was no scandal discovered in Judas up until this point. And after this point, of course, when the Scriptures are written because things are now unfolded before the writer and the Spirit is giving inspiration to those who record these things, of course it's mentioned earlier now in the ministry surrounding Christ. But outwardly, up until this point, the one who is infamously known as the betrayer of the Lord 
was one whom everyone else would have thought was a faithful servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you notice that though this is how we need to begin, the Scriptures actually give us some insight to him. We've mentioned this before when we discussed Judas, but it's good to be reminded if you turn to John chapter 12 and verse 6, here's an insight that was hidden from the disciples at the time that's now disclosed. When you notice, for instance, here comes the woman who serves and Mary takes a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, anoints the feet of Jesus. And notice verse 4, Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. What did he say? Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? Well, that sounds actually quite reasonable, doesn't it? But notice the comment. This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bear what was put therein. What does it tell us about Judas? Well, though his scandal was unseen by men, the scandal was known by God. God saw it. Judas knew it. Judas was aware of it. Now, he wasn't troubled by it. He had rather suppressed whatever conscience might have raised up against him and had sinned little by little so that now he's comfortable to put the mask on with such pretended piety as to say, why would we not use this money to help the poor? But in reality, his only interest was in receiving the money so he could take from the bag and fill his own coffers with personal gain and wealth. What does this tell us? The betrayer, before he betrays Christ, had unreckoned and unmortified sin. This is something that now brings Judas far closer to us. Because brethren, you and I are tempted to look upon secret sins as hidden and as protected and as within our control and power to deal with. Not realizing that sin always imprisons. Now, we do not mean that the believer who truly believes upon Christ is as it were enslaved as the unbeliever is to his lusts. But we do mean this, it hinders and obstructs and in that sense imprisons even the believer. And the believer ever has need of confessing his sin and repenting of it when it is so discovered. But when it is that we play with sin, when it is our parents come to us and say, you need to watch out for this. Our spouse says, hey, what are you saying that for? What are you looking at this for? A pastor comes and says, I've seen this in you. This is something that needs to be considered. And they only see the outward. And they see perhaps a little ripple on the water that tells them that something isn't quite right. But we know deep down that there's far deeper troubles of which they're unaware. And we're tempted to think to ourselves, they don't know it, so I'll hide it. And I'll manage it. We walk in the footsteps of Judas. We walk in the same path that will end in Judas being undone, being his own murderer, and receiving that title which is only elsewhere in the Scriptures applied to the Antichrist, namely the son of perdition. Brethren, hear well the warning of Judas. 
You may stand as a member of this congregation. You may stand with an orthodox creed. You may stand with the honors of others given to you. You may stand as an acknowledged servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet if you hide and delight in and protect secret sin, you are no different than Judas. Period. Now we wish to say, oh, but I am. Because you see, I've not gone forth and betrayed the Lord. Well, let's be clear. Judas didn't do that till the future from this passage in John chapter 12. For at least three years, he's secretly managing this behavior. He's secretly, from the eyes of all others, minus God Himself, is going about well-contained, well-ordered, maintaining a preaching ministry, maintaining miraculous ministry, maintaining following of the Lord Jesus Christ, all while managing the catering to His hidden lusts. This is a sobering thought that we have need to reckon with. Is there protected sin in your life that no one else knows about? Your temptation will be to manage it on your own. When the Savior Jesus Christ stands before you and says, confess your sins and I will save you. This is the betrayer. Notice secondly, the betrayal. Now the plan is recorded earlier when he with disgust because of Christ turns to Christ's known enemies and asks, how much will you give me? And I will betray Christ unto you. Now think of that for a moment. Judas, almost unbeknownst to himself, is now carried captive by his lusts. Do you see this? In other words, this sin that he thought he was in charge of is now bringing him as a creature to his own slaughter. This is the path of all sin. We think we're in charge of it. We think we can manage it. We think we can control it. Do you imagine someone going up to Judas prior to that time and saying, will you be guilty of betraying the Lord Jesus Christ unto the murderous treatment that he'll receive? Surely Judas would have said, why are you saying that to me? And if someone came to Judas and said, well, Judas, I saw you stealing from the treasury bag. Do you think Judas would have said, well, there's a necessary link between stealing from the treasury bag and betraying Christ? Almost certainly not, because that's how we reason. We say this sin has no direct line to apostasy. This sin has no direct line to casting off the Savior, Jesus Christ. But here's the problem. Every sin is rebellion against Christ. Every sin tolerated by us is us, in fact, saying to Christ, you will not be Lord over me. I will have my own way. Every sin is a testimony. Now the difference for the believer who's truly trusting in Christ is that there is actually a real warfare within him. As Paul recounts, the good that I would, I do not. And so he's desiring it truly, sincerely, not with the lips, but with actual desire and labor. And that which I do, I would not. And he has this 
conflict within him. And it doesn't lead him to say, well, everyone's like this, so I'm not going to trouble myself. But he uses some of the most focused and intense language. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? You see, the believer convinced of his sin doesn't sit back and take it easy and be cool and sort of manage it on his own. He cries out to God, I cannot do this. Who will deliver me? I praise God through Jesus Christ. That's the believer who's aware of his sin. The unbeliever aware of his sin sees not the chains that are enslaving him. And so soon as Satan tugs on the chains, there's a jolt to the soul that must follow after. Here, he commits this plan unto the elders and chief priests. He reveals in this plan what he values. What does he value? 30 pieces of silver. The price of a slave. He would rather have finances than everlasting life. He reveals his valuing of Christ. Your sins reveal your value of Christ. Your sinful use of time reveals your value of Christ. Your sinful speech, your sinful lusts, all of this is in so many express ways saying, I rather would have this than Christ. And this is the context in the plan of his betrayal. But notice what the text focuses upon. It's upon the appearance and the display of the betrayal. So Judas had earlier said, the one that I kiss is the one. Arrest him. We've already mentioned he could have given many signs. You know, you think for a moment, when someone has witnessed a crime and they're fearful of that one, they say to the authorities, they give a description, and maybe they have to be taken and sort of view the one, and then they say, well, it's that one in the black pants and the red shirt and so on. It's that one in uh, the black pants and the white shirt and the suit jacket. It's that one. But there isn't a drawing near to the enemy to give them a kiss. Scriptures, as we've noted, emphasize this. Why a kiss, not a point? Why a kiss, not a shout? Why a kiss, not a description? Well, one thing the kiss does is it attempts to conceal the real plot. Because, as we've noted, a kiss is a sign of friendship and intimacy. So Judas doesn't come and say, I'm betraying Christ. The disciples don't understand what's going on at first. Here comes Judas to kiss Jesus. And the disciples would say, why are you kissing the Son of Man? Why are you giving Him a kiss? This would have been normal. Judas is trying to maintain appearance. He's trying to maintain dignity. He's trying to display himself as one who is in control, one who is quite clever, one who is a friend still. Perhaps, we don't know, but perhaps Judas was hoping that even Christ would not understand what was taking place. Because Judas doesn't say, I'm come to betray you. This group comes 
and he comes and gives Judas, Jesus a kiss. We don't know. Maybe Judas had a plan further that when he, they were apprehending Christ, that he would put up an appearance of acting as if he was against their apprehension. We simply don't know. But the focus is upon this kiss. This attempt to maintain some appearance of friendship with Christ while concealing the betrayal that has already been put in play. Now think of this for a moment. What you see in Judas is a grand display of what every hypocrite does. What you see in Judas is as it were the large display of what sinners do in the sight of men to try and keep up an appearance of dignity while their hearts have turned from Christ. What might this look like today? It might look like secret sins in private and secret with friends, at work, among others, elsewhere, and yet coming to church. Opening the psalm book, singing the psalms. It might look like in the home, sin is secret, sin is hidden, and yet we maintain family worship. It might look like in private, on my own, a single person. Here I am engaging in sin, and yet I still open my Bible to read. It might look like engaging in sin and still telling others about Christ. You see, these kinds of things are part of what Judas is doing. He's giving an appearance of being for Christ while his heart has turned entirely against Christ. Now, we don't know. The Scriptures don't tell us precisely why he set upon this. But we can assume and understand certain things that would have been taking place. Judas's heart had despised Christ. But now he takes a sign of friendship and applies it to Christ. Who's the deceived one? It's Judas. Judas is not aware of what actually is taking place until Christ brings it out into the fore, front and center, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss. The very thing that is the expression of intimacy, love, devotion, delight, acceptance, reconciliation, peace, is now used by one who is set directly against all of those things. Brethren, what is it that we do when we treasure sin and then we call upon God in the name of Jesus Christ? But we approach God with a kiss, unwilling to break off from our sins. Again, this is not meant to discourage believers who indeed wrestle with sin. This is meant to awaken the contented sinner who thinks this is just the way it goes. This is just the way it goes for Judas. This is just the way it goes for apostates. This is just the way it goes for the Pope of Rome. This is just the way it goes for those who maintain an outward appearance of religion, dignity, honor, friendship with God and Christ, and yet whose hearts are far from Him. Their bodies may be so close in outward appearances with Christ that they could, as it were, put their arms around Him, their face next to His cheek, and give a kiss. 
But their hearts, if we could see them, are so darkened, so at war and troubled with hatred against Christ that the controversy is quite evident. Brethren, be not deceived by the sign if the sign is actually at odds with your heart. Do not content yourself that you are at church. Do not content yourself that you read the Bible. Do not content yourself that you pray. Do not content yourself that you've professed. Do not content yourself that you serve. Judas had all of those things. If your heart is treasuring secret sin, then you ought to be alarmed. Because all of your outward religious devotions appear to God as so many kisses of Judas. This leads us thirdly to the betrayal. Christ makes this point. Betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? Notice the betrayed, who it is. It is the Son of Man. That title is, of course, used in Daniel of the Messiah. The One who comes in glory with the clouds of majesty. Now, in Daniel, there is the recognition, Daniel 7, regarding the Messiah of His coming to judgment. He's the Son of Man who comes in the glory of the heavenly kingdom. But here is the Son of Man still yet in His humiliation. You think of all that is bound up in this language that Christ gives in such a simple question. In fact, in such a simple title. What Jesus is getting at is this. You're betraying the appointed Savior. You're gaining 30 pieces of silver in order to reject the only God-sent deliverer of sinners. Judas, you need me. Judas, you must have me. Judas, how can you betray me? Not that I don't understand, but you need to wonder at this. You're betraying the divinely sent Savior of sinners, and you're treasuring for yourself 30 pieces of silver and saying this is a sufficient cost for my soul. Because in cutting off myself from Christ, I am thereby cutting off all hope of redemption, all hope of salvation, all hope of deliverance, all hope of salvation for eternity. Christ is saying you are betraying your only hope. But what else is included in this? You're betraying the One whom the Scriptures prophesy is going to return in glory. The Son of Man, Daniel 7, comes with glory. And Christ will say, as He said elsewhere, that the Son of Man goes and when He comes again in the glory of His Father. Judas, think what you're doing. You're not only cutting off yourself from the hope of forgiveness, reconciliation, peace with God, but you are now turning in war against the One who is guaranteed to stand victorious on the last day. You have just entered into the most futile and wicked and ridiculous war. Think of what Psalm 2 tells us. 
The kingdoms and the kings do rage against God and His anointed. What does God do? He sits in heaven and laughs. He says, are you kidding me? You're coming at war against me? You're flesh and blood. I give you life. I sustain you. I simply have to stop and you're done. Moreover, I have set my king upon my holy hill. He will reign. He will reign over all the earth. Judas, do you understand what you're doing? You are betraying the one who is guaranteed to stand victorious. You haven't overcome me. You can't overcome me. You haven't carved out your way apart from God and Christ that will ensure a way of everlasting bliss. Instead, what you have done is you have entered upon a course that will certify your everlasting demise. Judas, do you betray the Son of Man, the victorious, the glorious, the returning and reigning King of kings and Lord of lords with a kiss? Hear the language kiss? Remember Psalm 2? What are the kings of the earth? What are they called to do? They're called to kiss the Son lest they perish in the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. And so, instead of giving that kind of kiss, which would have issued forth in Judas's acceptance and peace and forgiveness, he uses a sign of submission, of friendship, and of love to betray the only Savior and the certain conqueror, Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man. Are you aware if you are harboring secret sins what you're doing? Do you realize that you are refusing the only Savior? Do you realize that you are refusing the One who will certainly stand victorious over heaven, earth, and hell? Do you realize that one day Judas will see Jesus Christ again? Do you realize that? You will see Judas see Jesus Christ. Can you imagine the agony, the anxiety, the grief, the, uh, all manner of these contrary senses and feelings that grip and suffocate Judas when he sees the Son of Man come in glory and His name is called. You appear before Me. Stand up that the whole earth can hear of your sins, all of the privileges that you've refused, all of the offers that you harden yourself against, and do you, heaven and earth, the demons and angels, God my Father and the Holy Spirit, do you know what this fool did? He betrayed me with a kiss. But brethren, do you realize Judas will not be the only one who shares in the grief of Judas? Judas, of course, will have the lion's share of regret among the children of men. But the likeness of Judas and his grief will be shared by all who were covenant members, who maintained orthodoxy, who served in the church, 
who read their Bibles, who prayed, who sang psalms, who attended conferences, who attended family worship, who did all these things, invited others and called others to turn to Christ, and yet never saw the cross of Christ pierced through their own hearts, giving them life by grace through faith in Christ. This is meant to awaken us, not against Judas alone. Yes, we should see Judas and we should have a righteous indignation and an inward disgust that such should be done to the Son of Man. But we should see in Judas the sins at work which apart from God's grace would work within us under the same demise. Do you have answer in the sight of God as one has said with judgment day honesty? Do you presently hide secret sin? Your parents come to you your spouse comes to you, a pastor comes to you, a Christian friends come to you, and they're sort of keeping you accountable. And they say, hey, how's your soul doing? And you say, it's going okay. You know, everything's okay. And yet, really, you know, deep within, there is unmortified lust that you're protecting, that you're covering up, that you're, as it were, concealing. And you don't want it to jump out because you know that they then would call you out on it. They then would counsel you against it. They then would seek to see your soul addressed because of that sin. Understand this. Judas was present when Christ was giving the Sermon on the Mount. Do you realize that? He heard searching words. You've heard it said, that thou shalt not commit adultery. I say unto you, if a man looks with another woman with lust in his heart, he's guilty of the same. Judas heard that kind of thing. Judas knew that hidden sins were damnable sins. And yet he strengthened himself step by step against the witness of the Lord Jesus Christ and found himself now as this son of perdition betraying the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark this clearly. Young, old, professing, unprofessing, doesn't matter. If you have secret, treasured sins, you are this day in the danger of Judas Iscariot. If you look in the mirror, you will see the features of Judas. If you saw Judas' portrait here spiritually described, you would start to realize my features are lining up more with his. This does nothing to lessen the historical act of Judas himself, but it is to remind us that one can be convinced that Judas is the son of perdition while ignoring the very similarity to Judas that we have. What must we do? Lay it out on the table. We must take up what we treasure and say, what am I treasuring? Judas treasured money. He treasured pleasure. He treasured what money could buy. He treasured that kind of thing. But what did he not treasure? He didn't treasure his own soul. He didn't treasure everlasting life. He didn't treasure God and heaven. He treasured a lost and perishing world while Christ all the while was before Him testifying of the way of salvation. Oh, the folly of such a wicked treasure. 
But what does this call us ultimately to do? It doesn't call us merely to say, well, am I like Judas or not? All of us, to some extent, will have to say there's likeness of Judas in us. The believer, by his grace, will be able to say, oh, with misery, I wrestle against my sin, but praise be unto God, I know forgiveness through Christ, and I can say with sincerity, by God's grace, not perfectly, but sincerely, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. Not with my mouth, not with my hands, but sincerely with my heart. I delight in the law of God. I long to know it. I read Psalm 119, and I say, that's my heart. I cry out, quicken me. Enliven me. Make me to run the way of Your commandments. This is my desire. Oh, it burdens me that there's any sin within me. And I cry out to God for forgiveness. And I cry out to God for grace. And I pray, oh Christ, You have purchased all the benefits of the new covenant, which include the renewal of a heart and the writing of that law upon my heart and the causing me to enjoy fellowship with God. I cry out by Your blood shed, give that more to, to me. That's the believer. It doesn't always have the same degree. It doesn't always have the same emphasis. But the trajectory of his soul is that way. The unbeliever may have pricks of conscience. The unbeliever may have tears in their eyes. The unbeliever may say much and do much in fits and seasons. But the unbeliever never reckons with his heart. He never reckons with what his love is. See, the unbeliever likewise never reckons with his powerlessness. If you study Judas' life, you'll be impressed by what must have been a masterful handling of his affairs. He's in a small band of disciples, yet he's pilfering from the money bag. He's going out preaching Christ, and yet he's managing to conceal his hatred of Christ. All of these things are going on. He must have been quite the adept man. And yet, this is where Judas's fatal flaw is. He thought he could manage it. He thought he could handle it. Instead, if we are to benefit from Judas, what we need to learn is if we try to manage it ourselves, we'll end up in the same place. What does Judas do? Well, after this, you know, we'll come to it. He takes the 30 pieces of silver. He goes back and say, take it back. Say, well, that's the price of blood. We're not taking it back. And he throws it into this room. And then he goes out and hangs himself. He's hopeless. He's filled with sorrow. The Scriptures even attribute a sort of repentance. A repentance of sorrow and regret. But there's no real repentance. Think of this. Go back to Christ's words. Betrayest thou the Son of Man. The Son of Man. What did the Son of Man come to do? He's come to save sinners. The whole record of this Gospel account of Luke and Matthew, Mark, and John included testify that He is the Savior of vile, wretched, dead-in-sin sinners. What should happen when we discover my heart is more like Judas? Well, we shouldn't certainly seek to rectify it ourselves. Instead, we ought to go to Christ and say, though I am vile, though I am the sinner, I've heard you say that the 
tax collector who came into the temple courts would not lift up his eyes unto heaven, but smote his breast and cried out, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. And that man went home to his house justified. I've read and I've sung in the Psalms, forgive, pardon my iniquity. Not because it's small, not because it's insignificant, not because it's less than these notorious sinners, but pardon it because there's no other way of dealing with it because it's very great. And so Christ, the Son of Man who's come to save sinners, I come and I acknowledge, left to myself, Judas are the footsteps that I will follow. But I cry out to You, the Savior of sinners, and pray, save me. There's another one who is similar to Judas in the Scriptures in many ways. And later would become an apostle. It's Saul, who with a form of zeal of godliness and righteousness was breathing out threats and curses against the church, hating the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet as Paul records, he was shown mercy and grace as a pattern for them afterwards who would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. What's he saying? As the chief of sinners has been saved, Christ is able to save the most vile. Here is our hope. Though our hearts have stood against Him, yet may we come to Him and say, here's my heart, vile in itself. Forgive me. Save me. Heal me. And what a blessing it will be then when the Son of Man returns and before all of the earth, all of our sins are shown to have been forgiven by His death, by His work. And He says unto us who have trusted in Him, enter in to the kingdom of heaven. Would you stand with me for prayer?